Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. That's right. This is Brother West from the American Empire trying to keep alive the legacy of John Coltrane, Curtis Mayfield, Nina Simone, and I am so glad you are listening to 3CR because 3CR is a force for good. It's telling the truth and allows you both to laugh, not at, but with others. Oh, what a grand radio station it is. CR listeners, you're tuning in live to Querying the Air with Tan Hung in the studio, broadcasting to you from, from the Wurundjeri and Bunurong lands of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay my respects to elders past and present and any elders who may be tuning in right now. So on today's show, we're going to hear from Gabby Briggs, who is a Kuri woman from the sovereign Anaiwan and Gambangira peoples and has been raised on the country in Armadale, New South Wales. She relocated to the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people where she's currently completing her Bachelor of Fine Arts at RMIT. Gabby works primarily with photography but also works with different mediums such as video and performance. She is the co-founder of Sovereign Apocalypse and is a member of the Tudas Take Back Collective. Very excited to have Gabby on the show, but before we hear from her, we're going to hear from Queering the Airs Leah Incognita talk to playwright Declan Green, whose monumental new work, I Am a Miracle, is showing at Maltas Theatre from 18th of July to 9th of August. They talk about his play, Injustice, Queer Sincerity, and how to make theatre about brutality without creating a spectacle of suffering. Just content warning that the interview discusses the execution of two African-American men, Marvin Lee Wilson in 2012 and Willie Francis in 1947, as well as slavery and recent Aboriginal deaths in custody. Um, Well, the play uh, I'm a Miracle was uh, initially based on the last words of Marvin Lee Wilson, who was an African-American man who was executed in Texas on August 7, 2012. And um, it was a case that received quite a bit of media attention at the time because it uh, it represented a pretty considerable miscarriage of justice. Um, there was a ruling in 2002, in a kind of landmark Supreme Court case called Atkins versus Virginia, that said that our people without 
uh, with an IQ of less than 70 uh, couldn't be executed. They couldn't be held uh, accountable for their actions in the same way that somebody uh, who wasn't uh, mentally disabled could be. And um, so, uh, there were, so I get the fact that um, Marvin Lee Wilson had uh, had an IQ test which set his IQ at sixty-one, and was still managed kind of through a series of legal manoeuvres uh, to end up uh, on the gurney and being uh, lethally injected. Um, was yeah, kind of uh, something that received a large amount of public outcry. Um, I was really kind of interested in this case, but I was. Uh, also really interested in the fact that in his last words, which received a fair bit of publicity after he died, and they were, um, in part, take me home, Jesus, take me home, Lord, uh, take me home, Lord, I ain't left yet, must be a miracle, I'm a miracle. And so that was why the play ended up being called I'm a Miracle, and why I kind of ended up uh, writing in response to those final words, uh, kind of a, a piece of theatre that um, looked at not directly at Marvin Lee Wilson's story, like in a biographical sense, but kind of looked at the systems of inequality that created his story and how uh, these are kind of uh, allowed to flourish in the world we live in. And so the play looks at three different sort of times and and characters uh, in relation to, I guess, broadly miscarriages of justice um, and systems of inequality. How did you arrive at those, those stories? Um... Well, I, in a sense, I was kind of almost trying to tell the one story, but looking in the looking at this one story in the sense of uh, historical bondage or the idea that uh, here in the present we're uh, kind of bound to roles that have been designated to us, kind of by um, by injustices in the past, or the idea that the same kind of uh, oppressions just keep refracting throughout history, um, built into this kind of endlessly repeating cycle. And um, so uh, one of the stories is uh, a true story, which is, um, or it's kind of based on a, or freely adapted from a true story, um, which were the journals of John Steadman, who was a uh, Dutch uh, Navy captain in the uh, 18th century slave colony of Suriname. That's kind of where the story begins. And then it kind of jumps forward 240 years to contemporary Melbourne and tells a story about uh, a couple and... Um, where one of them is in a position of care of the other couple and that uh, role is something that eventually becomes more and more abusive over a period of six or so years. And um, then the final story is a fantasy that I've sort of offered or kind of a moment of uh, ecstasy or something like that, which is about um, the idea of uh, this cycle actually being broken or the idea of this uh, historical bondage being finally severed and the idea that... uh, kind of in this world that's that's kind of that could be perhaps the place of a miracle in this world the idea that of or a deus ex machina the idea of the hand mm. of god actually coming in and intervening and uh, kind of rescuing us from this do you think it's it's difficult to or how do you approach making work that is political that is talking about um i guess systems of oppression and injustice but uh without it without it getting too polemic well, I guess I I tried to do it by um, not not kind of talking directly to the audience about the politics in any kind of any any really direct way. I've tried to approach it in almost entirely in narrative terms. So by writing a series of stories that speak to kind of a larger narrative in a sense. But 
Towards the end of the work, I should say, it sort of does get a bit polemic (laughs) towards the end as well. Like, I think it does sometimes kind of venture into unabashed kind of agitprop, which I've never actually kind of done before as a writer, but um, was sort of something that was, I guess, kind of interesting for me. Almost almost that, like, uh, towards the end of this uh, this work, it kind of gets to a point of after, you know, an hour or so of kind of uh, dancing around this kind of subject matter or kind of uh, kind of posing... Uh, kind of different scenarios. It kind of gets to a point where it's hopefully not lecturing to the audience, but almost just uh, provoking them or demanding a series of questions of them. And I think that's really important for any art to do. I think that art should be a dialogue with an audience or with a viewer or whatever. I don't think it necessarily mm. should be a, a theatre maker or any artist just standing there yelling their opinions at the audience, but more about going, well, what kind of, what's the answer to this? What, what, what do you kind of think of this? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, with the... I guess the third part of the story, do you see just just personally, I suppose, not necessarily what's in the play, but um, do you see that idea of a miracle as being something that is, say, a, a political action or, or decision or um, does it sort of have to transcend things that we know that we're working towards? I, without kind of wanting to give too much away about... you. Know, the exact kind of construction of the final act of the play. It's um, I've kind of tried to position a miracle in the work as an impossibility, but in a way that's kind of about actively encouraging a process of dreaming or envisioning. Um, I kind of feel like at the moment there's this um kind of tremendous stasis that we're all kind of in this idea that um. Mm the movement of history which has kind of previously been about two warring um, feuding ideologies kind of pushing us forward in an act of progress or as the machine that drives progress is you know kind of it's been said a million times before that it's run out of steam that we've lost the mm-hmm. idea of a utopia and we're kind of sitting in this specious kind of present just <laughs> um, turn with our imaginations being turned slowly inwards towards the task of uh, of self and mm. making ourselves our lifelong project. And in the process, you know, our imaginations are kind of colonised and individualised and turned away from uh, a hope of collectivism. And and um, I think part of that is that, um, or a symptom of that is the act that, uh, that we stop actually really envisioning a future or we stop... Uh, we start kind of dreaming, or and um, or we and and the the idea of even a hopeless dream is is something which I think actually does have real value, <laughs> is um is something that's kind of uh, dissuaded or seen as just kind of dippy or earnest or mm. or uncool or whatever, and um so I think that the kind of grand, epics, kind of. Uh, mindless hopelessness hope, hopefulness of this kind this kind of final act of going actually maybe we can kick restart history that we can um or that we can restart history from a point of radical justice is um is kind of what that final act is trying to do yeah definitely i think that yeah it's a uh, more and more i feel like our dreams get smaller and smaller and the sort of political uh desires that people talk about are so much limited um you know, a, a reactive to a context where you can't really ask for anything or demand anything or, yeah. or act towards anything except, you know, really superficial reforms and um, and also that what is seen as political identity at the moment is so much about sort of consumer culture and totally, and creating yeah. a certain cultivating a certain self through you know what you like and what you listen to and whether or not your favourite 
you know, media is problematic. And... Yeah, 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 exactly. That that kind of the the uh, the jargon or the kind of the culture of problematic, which has incredible value in some areas, but mm. in in other areas can really be something that. Uh, that does kind of focus on the minutiae and the micro while much, much kind of uh, larger injustices are kind of perpetuated all around us. Mm. I, I've seen a couple of your past plays, um, Moth and Bog, uh, but I've missed a few as well. Um, can you tell us a bit about some of the other work you've done and how um, maybe how you see this new one, I'm a Miracle, I guess fitting into or breaking from the work that you've been doing previously? Um, I think I think the main difference with I'm a Miracle is that it's a much kind of more uh, a genuine attempt at uh, kind of speaking a, a kind of political language or trying to uh, make an argument for change. I think that I'm uh, in, in a lot of my previous work, and I also I, I collaborate with Ash Flanders in a kind of uh, in a queer theatre company called Sisters Grimm, and we do um, work that uh, tries to look at the politics of representation, but kind of does so in a really um, kind of unabashedly sort of like faggy and draggy and ridiculous and kind of uh, camp fashion. Um, but uh, And that's all always been about kind of like picking apart or assembling things from the detritus or remains or kind of yeah, explosions of pop culture or whatever, and using these kind of pastiches to critique the world around us and, and yeah, uh, mainly with kind of problems of representation. But um, but it's always been kind of really, really ironic and really detached and kind of sitting outside it, laughing at something and encouraging the audience to do the same, which I think is, which uh, I, I think can be really, really valuable. And I think satire in that sense is, is particularly in the moment in the kind of uh, common language of irony that we all do kind of, kind of share um, can be a really useful thing to do. But with um, I'm a Miracle is something that's, um, I guess, kind of more of an experiment for me and something I'm actually really, really scared of. I'm kind of terrified of putting this up in front of an audience and just having them kind of laugh at it or go, like, this is just earnest or sappy or ridiculous. And I really hope it isn't. I don't think it is. I, it I'm is. so <laughs> excited, I think, actually, by things that are sort of quite straightforwardly sincere, I think, yeah. because in some ways that can be such a break now from what you expect because it feels like you can't, you know, it is, it's such a position of vulnerability to... Totally. You know, to just dream of something, for example, or to, yeah. you know, um, be forthright about um, something you desire, whether it's politically or in any other way. Um, totally. What what pushed you to make, yeah, to, to do this in this instance? Um, I think it was just the subject matter. Like, it was the fact that I was writing from, uh, uh, writing about a real person's life. And um, very early on, when I kind of started writing the piece, I even though I kind of intended to write something that was much more directly biographical and about the life of Marvin Wilson, kind of when I started out, I felt like it was sort of wrong or I felt like um, when I was looking at my own position within the work and um, and my own life experiences against the life experiences of a very of an African-American man in a very distant country from here who... Um, grew up in kind of terrible poverty in, and had uh, a lot of opportunities denied to him from the moment he was born and was also, you know, um, considered to be mentally disabled by a lot of people. Um, I was kind of really conscious that there was a version of this that could be written which would be, um, I think, fall into the idea of just the spectacle of suffering or the spectacle mm. of black suffering, the idea that... Uh, 
I'd be putting something up in front of an Australian audience who could sit there and just go, well, this is really sad and this is really pitiable, but it's also very, very far away. And, um, and I'm not really, you know, implicated in this story. I'm not, this, this story doesn't speak to the world around me. So I kind of wanted to try and open it up and uh, look at, I guess, uh, the, the common kind of uh, language of law between uh, Australia and America, both as first world democracies and also first world democracies that uh, I think have a very kind of problematic enactment of the of the like the category of human mm. within the law, the idea that um, it's sort of supposed to be implicit within both our countries and both of our legal systems that every single human being receives full protection from the law. But then when we look around us, that's completely not the case at all. The fact that there are um, human beings against whom the law is used as a weapon, it's used as a weapon of the government, or um, human beings who can be... Uh, kind of attacked or ignored or beaten um, uh, without fear of real legal repercussion. And um, so I think that, you know, the Marvin Lee Wilson's life is an example of that in America and then in Australia you can really uh, adapt that to talk about Indigenous deaths in custody, the fact that in the last two months two men have died in um, the Northern Territory under kind of new legislation introduced in the last six months which says which is um about paperless arrests where men can um, women can be held in um prisons for four hours without any charge mm. and um and then also obviously the treatment of asylum seekers as well yeah certainly one one thing that i thought of actually when i first uh read about your play um was this work uh that m lamar who is uh who is laverne cox's uh, brother um, has made. I think he did a show called Surveillance Punishment and the Black Psyche, and it looks at Willie Francis, who was a, uh, a African American man who was ex- executed in Louisiana in 1947 uh, for the. He was found guilty of killing a white pharmacist called Andrew Thomas, who reportedly was either his employer or his lover or his abuser. And um, and he would have been, Willie Francis would have been a minor. I think he would have been 16 at the time uh, that the crime was supposedly uh, committed and he was, he was convicted and sentenced to death uh, by an all-white jury. Um, and I was sort of thinking about about this work, and I only sort of uh, came across Emma Lamar's work quite recently. Uh, but I was wondering if you think that there is, or if you want to speak to the idea of maybe like a queer sensibility, or yeah, maybe there is like queer perspectives on all sorts of injustices and suffering and uh, brutality that isn't necessarily at all around or directly just about gender or sexuality? I guess that it's something about, you know, growing up as a queer person, you become uh, the fact that you don't necessarily fit into any of the easy kind of binaries that are uh, kind of ascribed to you. It means that you, a lot of people, not everybody, but I think a lot of people end up with a um, an interest in uh, thinking outside categories or problematizing the kind of the uh, categories that we're kind of offered as we come into the world. And um, and I think that that ends up translating to matters of social justice a lot because um, uh, often the the way that that kind of legal discord kind of occurs is through um, uh, 
is through people uh, who do fall between the cracks of those categories who um, who are kind of ignored by the law or um, who aren't recognised as fully human. The uh, piece you're talking about is so interesting as well because it's, I mean, going the fact that you know so much has changed in in in, uh, in terms of racial justice in America and you know in the last fifty years. But then it's it's actually so fa- fascinating that such a that these even in terms of uh, a similar scenario of uh, of uh, death row or the death sentence being carried out in the country, the fact that these two injustices against African-American men can still happen, even over, over this kind of period of time, and two mm. grave and obvious <laughs> kind of um, um, miscarriages of injustice as well. I think that's kind of it's, it's just interesting and in a horrible and kind of macabre way just to look at going, even as far as we come, there are still just these uh, these moments which kind of echo and refract still, which show that we're still locked into particular roles or that the same injustices will keep playing out. Why Gender is a group for trans and genderqueer questioning young people and friends. Why Gender runs social events and have monthly meetings in the city. Check us out on Facebook or see ygender.com for more info. Y-G-E-N-D-E-R.com. Welcome back, 3CR listeners. You're tuning in live um, on Queering the Air with myself, Tan Hung. The interview we just heard was Queering the Air's Lee Incognita with Declan Green, who is the writer of I Am a Miracle. Check out this theatre work at Malthouse Theatre from the 18th, to 18th of July to the 9th of August. So up next, we're going to hear a song mentioned in the interview. This is Trying to Leave My Body by M. Lamar. And just warning, content warning for the song that uh, it contains lyrics on complicated feelings about one's body. Panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope... Only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. Hi, 3CR listeners. You're listening in live to Querying the Air with Tan Hung. And the song we just heard was Trying to Leave My Body by M. Lamar. So I'd like to introduce you to my guest in the studio, Gabby Briggs. Hi, Gabby. Hello. So Gabby is a Koori woman from the sovereign Anawin and Gumbangir peoples and has been raised on uh, has been raised on country in Armadale, New South Wales. 
she relocated to the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people where she's currently completing her Bachelor of Fine Arts at RMIT. Gabby works primarily with photography but also works with different mediums such as video and performance. She is the co-founder of Sovereign Apocalypse and is a member of the Tidus Take Back Collective. So Gabby, you have um, an installation at the Gertrude Street Projection Festival. Mm -hmm. Can you please tell us about that? Yeah, so I was lucky enough um, to team up with um, a good friend of mine, Arika Walu, through um, uh, the mentorship program that Gertrude Street Projection Festival um, runs. Um, I think I've been running it for the last two years, possibly. Um, and the work uh, that I've decided to do is an, um, part, uh, it's a work that I've uh, presented previously as a projection, but um, this time I solidified it a bit more and it's basically footage. Um, it's a video projection of footage from um, one of the rallies for the uh, Stop the Force Closures. Mm -hmm. um, and we've um, projected onto paperback and also onto sand and the video um, has uh, has um, subti subtitles overlaid in Vietnamese, um, Arabic, Mandarin and also um, Anawan, my own language, yeah. um, with the purpose of creating um, a direct dialogue between those communities and um, Aboriginal Australia and our stories. Um, and it was in um, it was made with the idea of um, recreating, you know, um, well, utilizing you know generic um, Australian kind of like media kind of yeah. formats and so on. Um, but it was to tell our stories and to tell to talk about sovereignty and so on. So yeah. Um, the work also has a installation component as well, where there was um, tents installed which were illuminated and a sovereignty mm. sign, um, and banners in Vietnamese, Mandarin, and Arabic, explaining that um, home is important. Yeah, amazing. So, what I found really interesting about your installation is that it's visible both day and night, which is like when you think of a pr the projection festival is only on at night um, but I really like how yours is you know really stands out everyone's walking by that block all the time um, I'd love to hear more your thoughts on like you know the visibility of sovereignty and that yeah. word and using the different languages as well yeah I guess um, it wasn't necessarily a very considered aspect of it being visible 24 hours for the next nine days mm. but it's something that I guess is quite critical to my work and it is um, enabling black blackness to be visible within white spaces. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, sovereignty is a word that we don't necessarily hear in any other context except for Aboriginal Australia and it's a convenient term and uh, to use to express our fight and what we want. Um, and it's great to have people thinking what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you said there were, I mean, I encountered encountered some people who'd walk by and like, oh, what does that word mean? So. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, it's really great that it's, and, you know, it's big, bold letters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so people can't miss it even on the tram. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's good to put it out there and it's something that's so, you know, uh, it's a word that's summed up basically what black fellas have been fighting for across this country. 
for a long time. Um, and the visibility on Gertrude Street is something that's really significant and I didn't actually know this until um, the opening night that Gertrude Street, despite the fact that I already knew that a lot of the initial health services for um, Coorys in Victoria were set up on Gertrude Street, like health services and so on. Yeah. But uh, Atherton Gardens has quite a... Um, massive history when it comes to Aboriginal people mm. um, migrating to that area and setting up ten embass- oh, tent cities and so on. Yeah. Um, so I think at the end of the day, the thing just got a bit bigger than my intent. It actually, it within that environment, sparked something else. Yeah. Um, in regards to its placement, its historic placement for a lot of blackfellas. Yeah. Near Charcoal Lane and so on, yeah. Yeah. So in terms of the footage being silent, um, can you give more insight to like why you chose for it to be silent? Um, well, there was initially, my initial idea was to actually have um, me speaking language mm-hmm. um, in it, which is speaking Anawan. And Anawan, um, unfortunately for me, isn't my first, second or third language. It's mm. something that is just now um, being um, revitalised from people back up home. Mm. Um, a few of my family members are now starting to speak it and, well, not fluently, but learning it, um, teaching young kids how to speak it. And that's what I wanted to do initially was to have that. But then I was like, well, I can't. Like, I can't do that because it's not truthful to my current situation in regards to the revitalization of it and yeah. creating a dialogue within a space that's a long way from home where people don't understand that language so yeah I had to reconsider it and I actually thought actually silence within this situation is much more important yeah um because it's actually telling a bigger story than what I could tell with that with language in a way as well. Yeah. Um, that absence of the fact that there's many of us um, blackfellas don't have the opportunity to speak fluently within with our own languages. So I wanted yeah. to um, remain truthful to the fact that we're still fighting for it. It's going to happen. Mm. I'm pretty sure that I'm adamant that I'm going to know my language very soon. Mm. But it's not it's not present now. But I also felt that silence. Um, was significant and it played along with the whole fact that I was negating any, um, um, I was negating any, um, understanding of the work through a white lens as well. So I didn't want to have English, um, in, within the work. Yep. Um, I wanted to negate that space as much as possible. Yeah. I found that so interesting because they, um, I guess, yeah, through colonisation, silence has been, you know, silencing mm-hmm. of culture, um, also imposing ideas onto cultures and then, like, erasing parts of it. Yeah. And so I find it really interesting that, yeah, you've chosen not to use... Well, the only English word you've used is sovereignty, but that yeah. hasn't been used by British colonisers when... Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's really amazing. Like, it's, like, the way you've navigated silence and it's, like well, we can use silence in a really powerful way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it was just meant to happen um, mm. in regards to having that silence because that's the reason why we're in this situation yeah. um, right now as well as that particular silence when it comes to ideas 
and conversations about sovereignty, let alone mm. in a, um, uh, the context of Indigenous people with new migrant communities. Mm. There's a silence around what actually is sovereignty and what's our roles and responsibilities as first peoples of this country, let alone as um, new people of this country. Yeah. In regards to that term. Yes, and there definitely needs to be a dialogue between um, people who have recently migrated here and yeah, indigenous and First Nations mm. people as well, um, because it's often seen as you know white and other, as I was saying yeah. before, oppositional, but. There needs to do, be a dialogue between like other and other and like yeah yeah I think um, for me I think it's it's quite critical that there are these conversations happening where we don't have um, the only conversations that we have are, are black and white mm. or uh, always and mm. it's it's not, um, it's <laughs> it's always centralized. Um, central um, centered around whiteness. Yeah. Um, but I think it's an interesting and a dynamic space to actually have migrant communities and blackfellas speaking about what's important to us, what we need, what we want for this country. Yeah. Um, because we need it. We need these conversations to happen. Definitely. So you said that this work um, you tested it out at the estates in Richmond, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I was pretty lucky um, as part of um, my uh, workload at uh, RMIT. Um, we had an opportunity to do a projection kind of like festival for two nights mm. at Richmond Housing Estate. Mm. And uh, when I first went there, because to be honest, I'm actually still fairly new. It's actually just a year this weekend that I've moved to Melbourne. All oh, right, yeah. <laughs> so I'm still fairly new, and I'm not. I don't venture over to Richmond um, mm. that much. So um, one of the immediate things for me is that um, it's just a migrant stronghold over there in regards to presence. Mm. There's a lot of migrant communities over there, and I learnt uh, a bit. Uh, whilst I was there, that majority of people who live within the towers are from, you know, Vietnam, East mm. Timor, Chinese, um, Horn of Africa. Yeah. Um, so um, people who, from my uh, understanding, have had uh, very similar um, experiences with um, very similar narratives in regards to colonisation and displacement and so on. So I think it's yeah. really important to understand each other's stories. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Um, you also have, you're also a co-editor of Sovereign Apocalypse. Yeah. yeah, I'd love to, for those who don't know, can you tell us about the zine? Mm-hmm. So uh, Sovereign Apocalypse is um, my baby. <laughs> it's a, a baby that I've made with my co-editor, Hannah yeah. Donnelly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that's been a long time in the works. Um, we launched the first one last year in um, November. Um, but before that, we, me and Hannah have been ha- had conversations about making a zine because we saw that as an um, an amazing platform where it's, um, you know, self-publication it's mm. independent yeah um and there's complete autonomy in regards to the content um mm. and I think that's the kind of space that we need as black fellas to kind of create 
um, dialogues and have debates or whatever um, mm. to talk about what's important to us and understand everyone's viewpoints and stuff because as much as I'm saying that we need to have conversations with other migrant community with migrant communities, we also need to have a safe space for us to kind of talk about anything because there's nothing. Mm. There's no actual space for us where we can be like, agree, disagree about things such as sovereignty, land rights, mm. constitutional recognition. Yeah. Like, there's no space for us to actually think critically about it. Mm. And I feel and, you know, Hannah feels that, you know, the zine was just a great space for us to kind of, you know, look at counter-narratives of what the Australian narrative is. Yeah. Um, how do we fit in it? How do we decolonise that? those stories, our history, mm. um, and how do we think about sovereignty now, in the past and in the future? Mm. Yeah, because uh, what's great about making a zine is that you can be as theoretical as you want or you can just, yeah. like, speak in, well, write in however way you want yeah. and that's totally fine. Um, I think I noticed on your webs on Sovereign Apocalypse website that you you welcome submissions in languages other than English as well. Yeah. Has that been – how's the response been to that? Um, well, we haven't actually had um, – we've had international uh, mob okay, uh, jump yeah. on board as well, mm. being pretty keen. Yeah. Um, in regards to other languages, we haven't had anyone at the moment who's put anything um, outside of English, but yeah. also – it's not necessarily um, writing or prose or poetry that mm. we're getting submitted. We're getting artworks and cool. and so on submitted. Um, jewelry, recipes, really? yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. So wow. it's a real dynamic space where we're like mm. looking at so many different ways of, um, you know, looking at sovereignty. Sovereignty isn't just about land. It's about food. Mm. It's about um, you know, uh, it's sovereignty over waters, it's sovereignty over um, how we access food and those are kind of conversations that we hold in the zine. Mm, yeah. 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 One of the, I was reading on your website, Sovereign Apocalypse website, that um, Sovereign Apocalypse attempts to or like explores future imaginings of total Indigenous sovereignty. Yep. Can you tell us about your latest edition, um, which is the theme? The theme is Galactic Imaginings, is that right? Yeah. And how that fits into that? Yeah, so Sovereign Apocalypse, um, the whole idea is centred around, okay, let's think about um, sovereignty in the most logical way possible. And that's in mm. a future, and for me, the most logical way to look at sovereignty is in a futuristic post-apocalyptic kind of world like starting from scratch mm. thinking about okay if we are thinking about aboriginal sovereignty and we're the majority how are we how are we going to look after this land how are we going to look after each other and all that kind of stuff mm. and it just uh, opening that space for you to think critically about it um i think really for me it blows my mind because it means that we can look at everything without the thought of any whiteness being present within, like, institutions and all that mm. kind of stuff. Um, so the second zine um, is based on galactic imaginations and that kind of came out of um, 
conversations that me and Hannah had together and had with other people at the same time and we were thinking about, um, uh, you know, we look at things um, in regards to space, um, galactic imaginings like aliens and Mm. spaceships and all that kind of stuff through a very white lens and very much through a Hollywood lens. Yeah. Um, And I think that's um, really unfortunate because not just Indigenous stories from here but all around the world um, are very, you know, there's galactic stories that are very important for many people's existence around the world. Yeah. Like, um, you know, uh, astrology and so on or centred around the idea that there's something out there. Yeah. And it's something, it's something that's very similar with Indigenous people here. And there's been, you know, discussions and there's been stories that have been passed down about, you know, um, for me, there's things called Min Min lights from back up home, which are these blue mm. lights that come and visit, mm. and they're scary. You're not allowed to be near them. Yeah. Um, but they're dismissed. Those type of stories are dismissed. I've heard stories of um, Egyptian princes coming to Australia prior yeah. to colonization. Um, and the way that we critique these stories and look at these stories is through a white lens. An anthropological lens, mm. and if we were to, um, you know, remove that and think about it, it's like it's not necessarily um, critiquing these stories and saying are these stories real or not. It's talking about why is it, why is it the fact that they're dismissed or not even spoken about? Yeah, or if they're spoken about, then it's often seen as a. Um, in a kind of condescending way or, like, that's a child's story or yeah, something Yeah, like yeah, yeah. So, like, prime example, if yeah. you went through school in Australia, you were mm. told all the myths and legends of Aboriginal mm. Australia. Yeah. Um, just before, you know, lunchtime or something. You know, that's the context of how, how, mm. how spirituality is um, taught to kids mm. as story times and fables and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. it's trying to get people to think critically about, you know, why why do we look at things through this lens? Yeah. When we know when I for myself have heard stories passed down orally through my family, through my bloodline, which mm. clashes with um why um ideas, notions and theories and philosophies from the white paradigm. Mm. So it's yeah, it's really interesting space. Yeah, yeah, sounds really interesting. And I've got my copy of um, the second mm-hmm. issue of Sovereign Apocalypse right here. So thank you, Gabby. Um, so where can we find Sovereign Apocalypse? And um, and also, is today's the last day to see your installation? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Gertrude Street Projection Fen- Festival finishes to that tonight from 6 till 12. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been on for the last nine days. Um, but with Sovereign Apocalypse, we've got our website, which is sovereignapocalypse.com. It's mm-hmm. a Tumblr. Um, but, and we've also got a big cartel, but the link's on the website. Cool. Awesome. And that link I'll put up, um, on Queering the Air's 3CR page, uh, just after, after day, after today. So now we're going to hear, um, some music by Sovereign Tracks. Do you want to mm-hmm. introduce Sovereign Tracks? Yeah. So under the umbrella of Sovereign Apocalypse, um, 
the co-editor of the zine, Hannah Donnelly, um, publishes a monthly, curates a monthly playlist um, called Softracks, which is um, basically where she's scoped out all the latest music from Indigenous artists in various genres. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a, another space where it's completely um, black-controlled and and black music for black people and for mm-hmm. white audiences as well. Yeah. Mm, amazing. Great. Um, so the track we're going to hear is Pay the Rent by a local um, musician, Paul Gorry. Um, just, and we'll hear that after the break. And, yeah, just wanted to thank you, 3CR listeners, for tuning in today on Queering the Air. We've been here. We had an interview earlier today, uh, Queering the Air's Leah Incognita speak with Declan Green and also Gabby Briggs live in the studio. Thank you for coming in, Gabby. Thank you. Hi, I'm Tristan Taramino, and you're listening to Queering the Air on 3CR. Bridge eagle man, find me or a clan. 